are you? Not too bad. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. This is an exciting day because this is, we've had our kind of introductory episode, but this is our first proper content filled episode where we're doing a bit of a deep dive into the first part of the legal leverage framework. So we've been speaking about the legal leverage framework all over social media, bleeding everybody's ears with it. And we spoke about it in the introductory episode, but it's basically the framework to make sure every business is following, to make sure they have everything in place. They're growing and scaling legally, safely, securely, but also hopefully profitably because they have all of this in place. Um, So today we're talking about how businesses can get set up right from the start. So making sure the kind of foundations are in place. So Lauren, what are we talking about today? Tell us about it. So today we're here to talk about everything related to setting up your business, the legal structure that you should follow and the pros and cons of each structure. Most people who set up their businesses don't really know what structure they should be following. So legal leverage will guide you through this process. Awesome. Awesome. So will we just dive right in? Perfect. Perfect. So guys, when we're talking about, when we're talking about business structures, we're talking about lots of different things. We're talking about what actual corporate structure you'd be, you should be following, what kind of setup you should have in place. It can mean lots of different things. Um, and I think we've had some questions about business structure in particular. Lauren, do you want to dive into some of the questions that we've had? Yeah. So just to start off with, um, do all businesses, when they're starting off, do they need a business plan? No, they don't need one. It's not a legal requirement. I mean, in a lot of industries, insurers will make you have one. So you might have to have one. Um, but you certainly don't need a business plan. Um, and actually what I've seen is entrepreneurs getting so bogged down in spending so long on their business plan that they don't end up having a business. They just spend months and months on it. And it's, in my opinion, a waste of time. I also, this is just my tuppence worth. I think it's a bit of a waste of time to put so much effort and energy into the business plan and make it really rigid. I think there should be some flexibility. You certainly want goals and aims and targets and we all know that's the really good stuff that gets us moving forward. But would I wed myself to it and be like, oh my goodness, I can't do that because it's not in the business plan until April next year? Absolutely not. Like get your financials down, work out what you're spending, work out what you need to take in, when do you need to hire, when do you need to do X, Y and Z? But the business plan isn't the be all and end all. Yeah, I suppose it's good to have something there as like a framework, as a template, but things change yeah. all the time in businesses. So yeah, like sticking exactly. to it might That's be hard. it. Exactly. That's it. It's like use it as a guide and something to kind of generally drive the direction of the business, but not necessarily be like, oh my goodness, this says we have to do this on this date, so we have to do it. So what is a business legal structure? So business legal structure is like the way you set up your business. So I'm going to keep this to UK specific at the moment, but is are you set up as a sole trader, um, which is basically just registering as a self-employed person with the UK government, with HMRC. You, you can trade through your own name. You can trade through a trading name. Like if I was a sole trader, I could just be Barbara Jameson trading as Jameson Law. I, I'm not, I'm a company, but that that is how it would work. Um, and you that that's all you need to do. You basically just need to do that. You need to file your annual self-assessments and you're just trading as an individual. Um, a lot of people start out like that. It's very limited admin. You've got your self-assessment to do once a year and that is pretty much it. Um, the reason that people don't stick with that for very long is kind of twofold. 
Firstly, it's not tax efficient once you start bringing in more than 40k to your business. At that point, you really want to be in some sort of corporate structure, which I'll go on to in a second. Um, For most people, that is not specific tax advice, so make sure that you do speak to an accountant. But generally speaking, if you're taking in more than 40k, you're going to want to move to a more formal structure. The other thing with running as a sole trader is you have what's called unlimited liability. So that basically means that you can be sued personally. So if something goes wrong in your business, they can sue you, they can take your house, take your car, hopefully it never happens. Um, But that's what unlimited liability means. Then you've got things like partnerships. Won't dive into that in loads of detail because hardly everybody has, anybody has like a kind of normal partnership anymore. Um, The really, really common thing that we see almost all the time is um, uh, companies, limited companies. So that can be just you setting up a limited company on your own or it can be with a business partner. Um, And I get asked all the time, can I get a partnership agreement when people are basically just talking about shareholders agreements. So shareholders own a company, directors direct a company. They're probably the same people in startups, but you have directors and um, you have directors and shareholders. When you're setting up as a limited company, loads of people think it's like tons of admin and oh my goodness, you don't want to do it. You have to file annual accounts. Well, you have to file your self-assessment as a sole trader anyway. Um, And once a year, you have to fill in a confirmation statement, which is a form that I think takes me about three minutes to confirm that the same person owns a business and the same directors there and the same registered office, etc. This should not be a big indicator um, in your decision. What you should be focusing on is tax efficiencies. So you can take money out of the business much more efficiently from a limited company in most cases. Um, and you have limited liability. So if something goes wrong, you as an individual are not sued. So you, Lauren Toner, are not sued. Your business is sued. So your house and your car is fine. You might lose your business and that's crap, but you won't lose anything you personally own, which gives people that kind of level of protection. Yes, so it gives people like a choice, like they could probably start off small, be a sole trader, and then when they start making more money, then change into a company. So is it easy enough to just change from being a sole trader into a company? Yeah, yeah, it is. Don't let anybody tell you that it's not. Lawyers who want to charge massive fees will be like, no, you have to do an asset transfer agreement between (laughs) yourself as an individual into a company. And while that's technically the right answer, the only person that would sue you is you. So I think you're fine. Um, It's fairly easy. You just set up a bank account under a different entity name. You'd start putting your customer trading through your new company. No biggie. that doesn't mean you have to start out as a sole trader. You can start out as a company. That's what I did. I just, I don't want to be sued personally. Um, but, and, and also if you've got big ambitions for your company, you may as well kind of set it up as a company straight away rather than deal with a little bit of faff. Um, it's easy enough to do, but it is still admin. So if you think you might change in the near future, just set it up as a company from the start. And when you're setting up a company, do you have to register your company? Yes. So you have to register at a company's house. Um, so you can literally just go into Google Chrome and type in company's house. I think it's companyshouse.gov.uk. Um, you can file a bunch of forms online there. They make it very, very easy for you. Um, it's so funny because I like to slag off authority at any given opportunity. But the Gov UK websites for pretty much everything are really helpful and very easy to follow. So I can't slag them off there. Um, So if you go online, I think the fee is £12 right now um, to set up a company. 
by the way, I've heard loads of people quoted like £300 from law firms to set up a company. Just do it yourself and pay 12 quid. You don't need a lawyer to do it. You can do it yourself. Um, you just basically fill in who the shareholder is. So it's probably you. You're probably the owner of the business. Who the director is. That's basically who's managing it on a day-to-day basis. Again, probably you. Um, how many shares you have. If it's just you, you just need one share. Um, nothing else particularly exciting. Add in your registered office. And a few days later, you'll have a company. Brilliant. So that seems like it's very easy to do. Yeah, it's very cheap. And cheap as well. If it's only £12, it's very cheap. Very cheap. So you have no excuse, guys. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to mention Brexit. So how does setting up in the UK now affect companies with the whole Brexit situation? So do you mean kind of UK-based companies? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're still going to be based out of the UK, probably not a massive difference. Um, What I would say is think about whether it would make sense for you to have a business like a company structure set up in another country so Ireland or another EU member state now that won't make sense for everyone and what it doesn't do is it doesn't deal with any kind of customs and tariffs issues um I get a lot of questions from people saying oh if I just set up a company in Ireland does that mean I don't need to pay customs charges not true first of all setting up a company in Ireland is really difficult um, and you have to be resident in Ireland or have someone who is so it's not as easy as, as it seems um, even though they are our neighbours it's not as easy as it seems however um, it doesn't actually deal with the issue because customs charges tariffs etc are imposed when goods cross the border regardless of who owns them so if that's your sole like decision making factor as to why you would set up in an EU country don't bother doing it just keep your UK company if you are trading regularly with the EU and if you have stock that's held in the EU and you have warehouses and stuff like that in the EU yeah I'd consider setting up a company there or a branch it could be a branch of your UK company means that you can just run everything through that EU entity you can pay EU VAT and circulate goods throughout the eu without paying tariffs and then you could have a uk entity for your uk customers well that sounds that sounds like it's not as complicated because i've been seeing things online um on facebook and on social media about people just not being able to understand the whole brexit situation but thanks for clarifying i mean yeah it is very complicated but it's what we're left with (laughs) so in terms of setting up your business what kinds of insurance do businesses need oh the insurance question the insurance question um i get this all the time and it's so funny because legal advisors don't really advise on insurance but we come across it all the time so we can give you a good bit of guidance here but you should always speak to an insurance broker because your business might have a specific insurance requirement that I'm going to miss here because of a particular industry. So bear that in mind, speak to a broker. Um, So different insurance policies and what you might need. Um, You'll often hear people talking about PI cover, that's professional indemnity. Um, Not to be mistaken with indemnities in your contract, that's something different. And when we talk about contracts, I'll go into that in more detail. Um, But for now, professional indemnity cover is basically when you're insured for something to do with the service you're providing. So this is going to be geared mainly towards service providers, goods providers like sellers of products, etc. might want PI cover because it covers things like 
data breaches and stuff like that. But it's it's less relevant. It's more important for service providers. And as I said, it covers things like data breaches. It covers like if your advice is wrong. Um, so from our perspective, if we gave legal advice that turned out to be incorrect, our PI cover would deal with that. That That's the kind of thing that you're looking to cover. It's not le- legally required. It's not mandatory. Um, in some industries it is. For instance, in the legal sector it is. But it's not required in all industries. Um, but it's a very good one to have. And for most companies in most sectors, it's not very expensive for the benefit that you get. Um, also, if you start to enter into contracts with customers, with clients, etc., they will ask you what your PI cover is. So definitely just better to get that in place. Then you've got public liability insurance. So that's your slips, trips and falls. Now, again, not legally required, but I mean, places like cafes, hairdressers, supermarkets, they all definitely need public liability insurance because if someone falls on their premises and they don't have insurance, they're absolutely scuppered if they are sued or something bad happens if they're fined. Um, Would like an online service business need it? Probably not, but... I mean, I think it's for for some companies, it's like four quid a month and it's bundled in with everything else. So if that's been offered to you, I wouldn't say, no, no, I don't need that public liability. Just take it. Because if you go and advise someone, if you're, if you're like an online coach and you go advise someone to go and stand at the top of a cliff and shout about their life goals and then they fall off that cliff and the family sues you, you're going to want that public liability cover in place. Um. The other like, but there's big three with your insurance basically. So you've got professional indemnity, public liability, and the third one is employer's liability. Now that is a legal requirement if you have employees or if you have workers, right? So they don't need to be employees. They could be self-employed, but if they are providing services to you. Now I'm not talking about like your website company or a marketing agency you work with but if you've got somebody who's not on the payroll but they are kind of working for you you still need employer's liability insurance and that covers you if one of your staff members sues you um so if you've done something wrong if you've breached employment law etc there are other weird and wonderful insurance types that you might need a lot of businesses need cyber insurance um particularly if they hold mass amounts of data um i was speaking to a client earlier who holds something like it's data on 20 million people in the UK. <laughs> he needs cyber insurance. <laughs> um, if something goes wrong, that's potentially catastrophic for his business. Remember, that's what insurance is, right? It's not a pain. It's not something to moan about. It's protecting your business. It's there to if something protect goes you. Wrong, 100%. Something goes wrong. You want that insurance cover in place because you want them to pay for it if something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. And how does insurance cover companies that have remote workers employers liability is the same that's the that's covered in the exact same way that i've mentioned um in terms of remote remote workers you still want to have public liability insurance for that because you still have a health and safety obligation as an employer um what you just also need to be doing is to make sure you have step you've taken steps you have procedures in place to make sure that your staff are covered from a kind of health and safety perspective it's probably going to be a requirement of your public liability and your employer's liability insurance that you've taken those steps to protect your workers so that's things like having a health and safety policy that 
tells people to make sure that their surroundings are safe. Obviously, you can't control that, but they should be taking certain steps. They should be taking regular breaks. They should be... They should know where the fire exits are. They should make sure that things aren't spilled on the floor. All of those kind of things. That's how you mitigate the risk there. That's really interesting. Yeah. So would you suggest that like employers have like a training course or something set up for their employees at home just to be sure? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I definitely would. It's quite hard for employers to show that they've taken steps um, to protect health and safety if their workers aren't in the building. Obviously, we've seen this a lot recently. Um, But yeah, definitely just having a policy in place very rarely does the job. You need to kind of instill it in your employees as well. And if you've not got the time or the knowledge really to sit and go through it in detail with them, yeah, get them on a course and it can can all be explained to them there. You mentioned earlier that companies that work online maybe that store data from people um that they would have to have like cyber security mm-hmm. how does this work in terms of like gdpr stance like would you have to be covered yeah so what people really need to bear in mind is that insurance coverage doesn't totally eliminate all your legal obligations so i see hear people say that all the time they're like oh i don't need a contract i have pi cover or that's a new one that you said there. I, d- I, d- I don't need to worry about GDPR because I have cyber security cover. Like I have cyber insurance. No, like if you le- read the small print of your insurance, it will tell you PI cover with your contracts. You have to have client contracts in place. And a lot of the time, and by the way, that's a big one that people don't realize that they're meant to have written client contracts in place for their insurance to be valid. But what people don't realize is sometimes hidden in there is it says, um, that their contracts have been externally reviewed, i.e. by a law firm. So double check that. Um, But from a GDPR perspective, you still need to be taking all your steps to make sure that you're GDPR compliant. You still need to make sure that you've got a lawful basis to process data, that you're keeping it safe and secure, that you're not sharing it with people that shouldn't have it, um, that your systems are are designed to protect it, your data's encrypted. A lot of the cyber insurance that you get in fact most of it will like confirm that you have all that in place in order for your insurance to be effective and in terms of a partnership in a company how can somebody say if two friends were going into business together yeah how would how would you go about it because you don't want to like upset your friend if anything goes wrong or you don't want anything yeah. to happen down the line? How would you go about setting up a partnership? Well, first of all, I'd say probably don't set up a partnership. Probably set it up as a company because partnerships have the same problem as a sole trader, which is they're not tax efficient after a certain time and you have unlimited liability. So in a partnership, both of you could be sued. So I would say definitely set it up as a company and both of you would be shareholders and directors. In most cases, that'll be 50-50, but it could be different if someone's going to spend more time or more effort or put more money in, etc. The time to regulate all this stuff is when we're all friends at the start, right? So when we're all getting on well, that's the time you want to put documentation in place. And the document you want here is a shareholders agreement. So that's what you're asking for. If you go to a solicitor or if you're trying to do one yourself, that's what you're doing. It's a shareholders agreement. That'll set out the rights and responsibilities of both parties. What happens if someone wants to leave? What happens if someone doesn't stick with what they said they will? What happens if somebody goes away and tries to set up a competitive company with this company? 
all of that will be covered but I would definitely get that in place before it all goes wrong because then when it does go wrong nobody's going to want to talk to anybody else but you will have this document that you can look to and it's like right in this situation x y and z happens so in terms of setting up your business so we have three main points so it's setting up your business choosing the right structure for your business yep yep then we have registering your business with the ico Yep. And then having your insurance in place. So that's the top three things that you would suggest business owners to, to start doing when they're setting up. Yeah, that's and that's a really good point that we haven't touched on is registering with the ICO. So UK Businesses Information Commissioner's Office, that's what ICO stands for. That is the data protection body in, in um, I almost said Glasgow. In in the UK, it's just because I'm in Glasgow right now. I'm like in Glasgow, no, in the UK, um, and they basically it's it's a legal requirement for like ninety nine point nine percent of businesses to register with the ICO. I'm not having any more arguments with business owners who say they don't process personal data. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. If you email someone and you have their name, you process personal data, which means that you need to register with the ICO. Um, the fee is normally for startups £40 a year. If you're a little bit more successful, it'll be 60 And then I think it jumps up to like 250 a year for companies that's, that process a massive amount of data. But this will not impact most people in this audience. Most of, it, most of the businesses will have to sign up for the 40 or the £60. They'll tell you which one it is. Um, it's a quick form. It's um, ico.org.uk. You just literally hit like, register or pay a fee or something like that on the right hand side you go in enter your details they come up from company's house if you're a registered company just put your name in and then you you don't even like people get all panicked and they say oh i need to tell them what data i'm processing you don't do any of that you literally just pay the fee you pay it once a year and that's you complied with like your basic gdpr obligation it's literally like i have people on the phone that are like oh so i've done this data protection audit and i've i've like done due diligence on all my providers and I've done all this and I say to them have you registered with the ICO and they go what's that like (laughs) it's like the easiest way to breach GDPR so if that's not on your list and if it's not been done get it on your list now it's not going to break the bank it will not break the bank but it will break the bank if you're fined by the ICO so 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 it's definitely (laughs) worth doing yeah so what is the difference between the ICO and company's house Companies House deal with registrations of companies. So you're literally just registering your company there, incorporating it there. You update Companies House once a year just to confirm to them that everything's the same or if anything's changed. But you also update Companies House like if a new director comes on, if someone leaves, etc. It's like it's like the master identification register of all the companies in the UK. ICO links into Companies House, but its job is to make sure that everybody is complying with GDPR. Cool. And so why do you think that following this legal structure will make you successful as a business owner? Well, we'll go into the legal leverage framework in detail over all the episodes, but this is the fundamental part. Um, and And the important thing to stress is that if you're like past the initial stages and you've not done this stuff it's not a oh I didn't do that so it's fine it's not fine it'll cause an issue at some point so go back almost audit yourself and make sure that these three things that we've set out today 
are covered. You've set up with the right structure for you and your business. You've registered with the ICO and you have the right insurance in place. These will come back to bite you. And that's why they're they're necessary for success. If I just go through each of them, if you don't set up the right structure, end up paying way too much tax or being sued when you shouldn't. If you don't register with the ICO, you get fined or at the least have a mass amount of admin to deal with. If you don't have the right insurance in place and you are sued and something goes wrong, you've not got any coverage, could bankrupt your entire business. Um, or you might just not win clients because you can't prove to them that you've got the right insurance in place. So it's more like a prevention is better than cure with this stuff. If you if you tick off these three boxes, you have made the fundamental like level of your business really secure, really safe, and then you can build on it on top of it. Do the three things here bring you in profit? No. But what they do do is they stop you making massive loss and making serious financial mistakes because you've not done it right. So it's definitely worth to start off with these three points to make sure that you're protected down the line. 100%. Like, if you've not done it, go do it now. Get it on the to-do list right now. It's not going to break the bank, guys, and it's going to save you issues down the line. 100%. That's really good. 100%. I want to know, cool. you may not have any anything to answer here, but I want to know, do you have <laughs> any horror stories about anybody setting up their business? Um, do I have any horror stories? I wasn't prepped for this question. Um, I have loads of horror stories and a lot of them relate to things like trademarks and contracts. I'm trying to think if there's any set up ones. Well, yeah, actually, I mean, they're not, they're not horror stories like, oh my God, we all died. But like... I did have a client who was completely turned away and he went through a full bidding process for a massive piece of work and he was turned away because they didn't have the right insurance in place. Somebody else was turned away because their company was brand new. Even though he'd been trading for three years, he hadn't set up with the right structure. So it looked like they were a brand new entity. And this client was a bit nervous and they didn't want to engage with a brand new entity with no track record. Now, it might seem a bit daft in the circumstances and yes, my client argued like but we've been running for x y and z amount of time and 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 we've got this reputation it it was just it was above their risk tolerance um and and it's just it's something that you can just sort quickly um and and it shouldn't cause all these issues that it could cause down the line so they're not horror stories but they're more like business prevention stories like they've stopped business being able to grow and prosper at the rate it should because these weren't in place one last question. How did the ICO know if you're registered or not? Um, so they do a check off company's house, like I think every quarter, maybe it's every six months, but you might have had a letter through the door saying your company's registered, get registered with us. Um, so that's the easiest way. So if you have a limited company, they will know if you're registered or not registered. Um, if you're a sole trader, it's not as easy for them, obviously, because there's no register of sole traders, really. Um, but that doesn't mean that they won't find out about you. And remember, we're still like GDPR came in in 2018. We're only three years in. That's very, very early for a regulator to be like knowing everything that's going on in the industry. There will come a time where they start trawling through sole traders as well. So you're not safe. Get registered. (laughs) Well, that's everything I think I have today. And I think you've covered everything in really great detail. 
Thanks. And guys, as ever, like, do let us know if there's any questions that we can help you with um, that we haven't answered on here, whether they're related to this or related to anything else. Um, we have an email address that you can um, get in contact with us um, directly. Lauren, what is that email address? <laughs> it is legalleveragelaw at gmail.com. Perfect. So if you drop us an email there, guys, we'll be able to pick that up as part of the podcast. Um, So just stay tuned for future episodes um, and we'll be able to answer your questions there. Um, We love CUNYs. They're they're great for us because it means that we can make sure we know exactly what your concerns are, what you're struggling with, and we can get you the answers and the advice that you need. Brilliant. So we'll see you guys next week on Legal Leverage Podcast. Thanks so much, guys. Speak to you soon. If you'd like to hear more about the Legal Leverage Framework and access some free resources, including free guides and trainings, pop over to our website, which is jamesonlaw.legal and click on free resources. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Tune into our next episode to learn more about how to grow and scale your business the right way.